This is C-SPAN's First Ladies in Their Own Words podcast, listening to the voices of eight modern first spouses. In this episode, you'll hear from the 43rd First Lady, Laura Bush. Born Laura Welch in 1946, the Midland, Texas native grew up as an only child. She graduated from Southern Methodist University in 1968 with a degree in education and taught second grade for two years. She then enrolled at the University of Texas at Austin and was awarded a master's degree in library science in 1973. In the summer of 1977, Laura Welch met George W. Bush at a backyard barbecue hosted by mutual friends. They married in November of 1977 and in 1981 welcomed fraternal twin daughters, Jenna and Barbara. Prior to her White House years, Laura Bush served as the First Lady of Texas between January 1995 and December 2000. She became First Lady of the United States in January 2001, serving in that role until January of 2009. We begin with Laura Bush talking with C-SPAN in April 2000 at the George W. Bush campaign headquarters in Austin, Texas. Laura Bush, you have described yourself as a traditional wife, a traditional mother. What does that mean? Well, actually, I said that I have always had traditional jobs. I've had jobs that were traditionally women's jobs. I was a school teacher and school librarian. I was a public librarian for one year in Houston. Um, I think in a lot of ways I've been lucky. I've been very fortunate to have the opportunity to stay home with my children after I had had children, after I had twins. uh, I stayed home taking care of them and had a really great time being the wife of the governor of Texas, uh, first lady of our state. I've had the opportunity to work on issues that I've been interested in my whole life that had to do with education and reading and libraries. And I've loved that. I I think I've actually had the opportunity to make a little bit, bit of an impact. And I think that's been great. But I also think our country has benefited from the first ladies always. Uh, We have two very revered first ladies in our state, my mother-in-law, Barbara Bush, and Lady Bird Johnson. And I I know people know about Barbara Bush's work with literacy. And I, I think a lot of people remember how important Lady Bird Johnson's work with the environment and the use of native plants is. She was very... Um, active in the Highway Beautification Act of 1964. And in fact, now that a lot of our roadsides in the United States are now planted with wildflowers, really, is because of Lady Bird Johnson's interest in that. So I think in the end, we always benefit from the interest and the passions of First Ladies. That was Laura Bush, First Lady of Texas and wife of presidential candidate George W. Bush in a spring 2000 C-SPAN interview. The Bushes moved into the White House the following January. You'll hear Laura Bush in her own voice, how she experienced her eight years as First Lady, featuring footage from C-SPAN's video library. First, just eight months into their term, the former librarian and teacher was transformed into a wartime First Lady by the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. She talked with reporters on September 12th after visiting Pentagon victims in the hospital. This is Laura Bush in her own words. Well, the people behind me are some of the members of that emergency response team. So besides having the chance to visit with three of the victims uh, who are here at Walter Reed, whose lives uh, will be changed forever, like all of ours, and by the way, who are all in very great shape and uh, look like they'll recover fully, Uh, besides the chance to thank them for their service to our country, to give them our uh, wishes for a very speedy recovery, I also had the chance to thank the emergency team members, uh, some of whom are behind me, uh, 
some of these emergency team members were in uh, just in their last few days of a nursing course here, a practical nurses course. They never expected uh, to have to deal with a situation like this at the very end of their um, of their course. And I know how tough it is for them, uh, just like it is for the patients who are in here as well. So I'm really uh, thankful that I have the opportunity to thank them and uh, to wish my best to the patients. Uh, all of us now as, America, as Americans have the opportunity to show our compassion, our resilience as a country, our courage. Uh, that's what these members of the team behind me showed America yesterday when they uh, rushed to the Pentagon to, uh, to rescue people. It also gives us all a chance as Americans to do what we can for our fellow Americans, uh, to donate blood in cities where uh, they need more of an adequate supply. Certainly, if people want to wait a month or two uh, and replenish the blood supply in their own communities, for the, uh, uh, some of the blood may be sent to New York or here, but it's a really good thing to do. It's also just a way to think of how we can help each other and a way to think about how we can reassure our young children uh, that they're safe. It's a time for parents to make sure their young children don't spend a lot, a lot of time in front of the television uh, to try to protect their young children, keep them from being fearful. Uh, this is just a good time for us to think about the message that our children are getting everywhere and to let them know that, they're, that most people in the world are good and that uh, this is a rare and, and tragic happening, but uh, to let them know that they're safe and our love all over the country. So I also want to thank the media for the way you're covering all of this, the uh, respect and the dignity you're giving to the, to the victims and the people all over our country who are suffering. So thank you all. Other other victims or other? Do you have plans to go to New York or see the go to the Pentagon? Not right now. I've um, visited these three, but I may be visiting some others later. I'm going to try to talk tomorrow about ways, specific ways we can help children uh, deal with the trauma of this. And, and one thing all of us need to do also is help ourselves. If we, uh, if parents themselves are finding that they uh, feel frightened or. Uh, uh, need some help. I know that churches and clinics and schools all over the country are, are supplying grief counselors and this is a good time to avail yourself of those uh, those services if you need them and to do the same thing uh, for your children if you feel like your children need it. What else will you be doing for children? You said you're going to try. Tomorrow I'm going to talk specifically about uh, specific ways we can help help our children. Thank, thank, you, all. Mm -hmm. thank, you, thank you all. Thank you Thank you all. Thanks so much. Thank you all so much. Just shy of two months after the 9-11 attacks, the First Lady went to the National Press Club. There, she reflected on how the lives of Americans had changed and recalled how she experienced that terrible day. It seems that every generation has its day of infamy that none would ever forget. For my parents' generation, that day was December 7th, 1941, when our nation was shocked by the early morning attack on Pearl Harbor. For my generation, that day was November 22, 1963, the day that President John F. Kennedy was assassinated on a street in downtown Dallas. 
I was a senior then at Robert E. Lee High School in Midland, Texas, and I was sitting in a classroom when we learned that the president had been killed. I remember feeling as if a blanket had been thrown over our school, suffocating all the usual sounds of chair scrapings and classroom chatter. People cried. The horror was so sudden and so unimaginable. I went home for lunch that day, and I remember my parents' sadness. And like most American families, we spent the next few days watching television. I remember it as a terrible blow, almost too much to bear, a sudden reminder at a very young age of how fragile life truly is. Now we've experienced another one of those days in our national life, a day so horrifying that it'll be permanently seared in the hearts and memories of all of us who witnessed it. I was on my way to meet with Senator Ted Kennedy when a Secret Service agent told me that a plane had just hit the World Trade Center. We thought it was an accident at first, but as we approached Capitol Hill, the Secret Service said that another plane had hit hit the second tower. We knew then that it was terrorism. And I remember thinking that nothing would ever be the same. Senator Kennedy and his big dog, Splash, were waiting for me when I got to the Capitol. Words can't describe the depth of feeling that I had being with President Kennedy's brother as our nation's heart was broken with another tragedy. Senator Judd Gregg, who's a very close friend of mine and my husband, joined us, and I felt like we were just going through the motions, pretending to be normal, when we all knew that normal would never be again what we knew it to be on September 10th. We walked out to express our prayers and our concern for the people of New York and to tell the press that we were postponing uh, the Senate Education Committee briefing. Senator Gregg insisted that we were merely postponing it, that we would reschedule because we wouldn't let the terrorist prevail. At that moment, Larry McQuillan from USA Today asked a question that was on the minds of many Americans. He asked, what do you say to the children? What I said then and what I've said in nearly every interview since is that we need to reassure our children that they're safe in their homes, and in their schools. As I've traveled around the country, I've found that children still need to be reassured. When I visit classrooms, children will sidle up to me and whisper, what do you think of what happened? And I'll say, I'm sad. And they'll nod their heads and say that they're sad too. We're a different country than we were on September 10th in ways that the terrorist could not have imagined or intended. We'll go back to our routines, as we always do, but we'll do so with a stronger sense of life and liberty. Americans are willing to fight and die for our freedoms, but more importantly, we're willing to live for them. We'll move on with our lives, but we won't forget the images and the events, the photos and the front pages of the past two months. They're etched into our minds forever. Some witnessed the moving images, others captured them, but we all feel the power and the potential of this still unfolding drama. I've learned these things from my visits with people throughout the heartland. 
We've all been watching and reading the news. I've seen people helping strangers. I've seen strangers becoming heroes. I've seen this country at its best. Americans are proud and we care about each other. That's what I see in the news. And that's what I see in America. How has your routine changed since that date? And do you plan to travel around the country more for reassurance to the American people? And has your outlook on life changed? Well, I think I said some of that, some of those answers in my speech. Our, my routine has changed. Uh, we immediately canceled a lot of events that uh, we had on our schedule right after September 11th. I did continue to do uh, some of the events that were on my schedule that had to do with schools. I taught around America. I taught in five different uh, cities, in Baltimore and Washington and Atlanta and Baton Rouge and Newark, New Jersey, uh, which was a really wonderful week. Um, one, I don't know, if only the teachers here know how comforting second graders are. But for me, I was really comforted around the, that whole week when I would be in a class and second graders would have their letters ready to, for me to bring back to the president. And the letters would say, Dear Mr. President, I love you. and I love the firemen and I love the firemen's dogs. And they were um, very, very um, reassuring. I also went to Learning Leaders, which is the big volunteer arm of the New York City public schools. It's bigger, actually. There are more members uh, than there are Peace Corps members. Uh, it's a huge volunteer arm, and I spoke there uh, because I had the same message to say to them. These are the volunteers who work in public schools, and that was for them to comfort those teachers. The teachers are comforting our children, but all of us as parents of school children or as community leaders uh, need to thank teachers around the country for the care they're taking of our kids. But then there are other things that have changed. There are no tours right now of the White House. And um, in a lot of ways, I think that's sad. Um, you know, when I walk downstairs just to even walk the dogs out, I have to walk by a screen when there are tours to take the dogs out on the lawn, but now that screen isn't up because there aren't tours and, and it's uh, lonely and sort of quiet in there. So I hope that'll come back pretty soon. You're listening to First Ladies In Their Own Words, and we'll be right back. In November 2001, Laura Bush delivered a radio address usually reserved for the president. Her topic, the brutality committed by al-Qaeda terrorists and the Taliban against Afghan women and children. She talks about finding her own voice through this issue. Laura Bush, did it surprise you at first, when you first became First Lady, at the platform that you were given and the voice you had? Mm -hmm. I didn't really. I knew it. I mean, I knew that, of course. I knew it intellectually because I'd seen my mother-in-law and uh, the platform that she had to talk about literacy, which was her particular interest. I'd seen Lady Bird Johnson and how she'd influenced me even uh, here at home in Texas because of her interest in native plants, but I didn't really know it until I made the president's radio address, a presidential radio address in that fall of 2001 after the terrorist attack to talk about what uh, the way women and children were treated by the Taliban in Afghanistan. Good morning. I'm Laura Bush, and I'm delivering this week's radio address to kick off a worldwide effort to focus on the brutality against women and children by the Al-Qaeda terrorist network and the regime it supports in Afghanistan, the Taliban. That regime is now in retreat across much of the country, 
and the people of Afghanistan, especially women, are rejoicing. Afghan women know through hard experience what the rest of the world is discovering. The brutal oppression of women is a central goal of the terrorist. Not only because our hearts break for the women and children in Afghanistan, but also because in Afghanistan, we see the world the terrorist would like to impose on the rest of us. All of us have an obligation to speak out. We may come from different backgrounds and faiths, but parents the world over love their children. We respect our mothers, our sisters, and daughters. Fighting brutality against women and children is not the expression of a specific culture. It's the acceptance of our common humanity. And that's the first time I really realized that people heard me and that uh, what I said people listened to. And so then I knew from then on, although I think you don't ever really um, know it intellectually um, until maybe after you leave and, and see what the platform is. As the war against terrorism continued in Afghanistan and later in Iraq, the First Lady's attention also turned to the administration's domestic policies. Education was a paramount concern for the former librarian. She spoke in the White House East Room on the first anniversary of the No Child Left Behind Act. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States and Mrs. Laura Bush, accompanied by the Secretary of Education, Rod Page. Thank you all very much, and thank you, Secretary Page, for being here today, and Senator Gregg. Thank you all very much for your leadership in inspiring reform in education through the No Child Left Behind Act. One year ago, when the President signed this historic legislation, he embarked on a mission with our leaders in Congress, a mission to ensure that every child in America receives an excellent education. Today, our students, teachers, parents, and communities are embracing these new standards with unwavering determination. <clears throat> the No Child Left Behind Act provides our schools with unprecedented reform and resources. Across America, students and schools are providing results and the reassurance that standards and accountability work. As I travel across the country, I see the promise of reform in America's schools. I see children excited and ready to learn. I see teachers who are committed to success and principals who refuse to accept failure. We're honored to have several of these very principals here with us today. Thank you all very much for believing in the power of reform and for believing in our children. Our children need our continued support. Today, we have more students in school than ever before, more children who want the American dream and who undeniably deserve it. To meet this challenge in the coming years, we will need more people to answer the call to teach. We know that our children's future depends on their education and the quality of their education depends on our teachers. Strong schools and quality teachers 
are the President's priorities, and I'm proud to be part of the President's work to achieve these priorities. Our work to reform education is far from over. We face many challenges, but already we've made great strides, and our resolve remains strong. Together, we'll bring the promise of an excellent education to every child in America, and no child will be left behind. Ladies and gentlemen, the man who will make sure we accomplish this, my husband, President George W. Bush. In late summer 2005, deadly Hurricane Katrina displaced thousands of Gulf Coast residents, including school-aged children. Laura Bush traveled to Des Moines, Iowa, to meet with students and their families who had been given refuge by local schools. So y'all are all signed up in school now? Mm -hmm. Good. Great. Do you have family here? Yes. Uh -huh. Great. Good to meet you all. I said Mary. Hi, how are you? Well, I'm doing that. I love the school. Getting to go into a normal life. Hey, we were just in the same class too. Was that fun? Was that fun? That's fun. That was a very fun music. Did you like it? It's a fun music class. You played the sticks, and that was fun. And you sang "America the Beautiful." And is that your favorite Greenbrook Kids song? <laughs> Good to see you all. She's really quick. Hi, I'm you want to sing? <laughs> well, I'll go ahead and give a talk a little bit so you all can leave and I can actually visit with them a little bit more. <laughs> uh, Margaret, Secretary Spellings, and I have been traveling today. I had a back-to-school event on my calendar before the hurricane. I was uh, going to Des Moines, Iowa, which is where I went this morning for... Uh, a great event, and of course those children in Des Moines, Iowa, were very concerned about the children here. And they sent a little box of uh, one classroom's worth of uh, supplies to give to the children here with their love. 
Des Moines actually has about, I think they said, around a dozen students who have come up from the Gulf Coast who are in school there now. Not at the school that I happen to visit, but at other schools in the Des Moines school district. So really, around the country, in almost every state, children who've been displaced because of Hurricane Karina are starting to school this week. It's really important for parents to make sure their children go to school. It's important for their children to have a normal life, to have the structure and the routine of going to school. And especially since uh, many children have suffered, um, really um, have seen and suffered a lot of really terrible things. So it's important to have the safe structure of, that a school gives you. So I want to thank all these parents. I want to thank them for putting their children in school here and for letting their children have a normal life. Um, each day, uh, more and more things happen to know that uh, the Gulf Coast and New Orleans are going to return, that uh, things will be rebuilt, that people will be able to go on with their lives as they were at some point. But I want to thank all the people who've worked on that, specifically the school districts, dis districts around the country that are taking in students um, all over the country. Some cities, as you know, are taking in a large number of students, incorporating them into their school districts. And I want to thank the people here in this school district in Sunnyvale for taking in students and then the others that are doing it around the country. And I also want to encourage anybody who is affected by Hurricane Karina to make sure their children are um, in school, that they're safe in school, and that they have all the support that they need to weather this uh, time that's going to be difficult for them. Any questions? Well, I wanted to come here because uh, this is a school district that has kids in it from Mississippi and from the New Orleans area that couldn't go to school in their home school districts. I wanted, I'm going to later visit, as you know, a shelter that's here. I wanted to uh, visit another shelter. I've visited several so far. All of them have been organized and run very, very well for the benefit of the people who are having to be sheltered, who are choosing that. Um, so that's why I really picked DeSoto County to come to. How will the government help you with this? The, we, that's a very good question for Secretary Spellings, but the, <laughs> but, but the government will. I happen to sit in on a meeting with the President and Secretary Spellings talking about the ways to uh, get money right away to school districts that have a, a larger population because of the hurricane. That same year, 2005, the First Lady took a star turn at the annual White House Correspondents Association dinner in Washington, D.C. And so the city slicker asked the old guy how to get to the nearest town. And Not that old joke. Not again. <laughs> I've been attending these dinners for years and just quietly sitting there. Well, I've got a few things I want to say for a change.
this is going to be fun because he really doesn't have a clue about what I'm going to say next. George always says he's delighted to come to these press dinners. Baloney. He's usually in bed by now. I'm not kidding. I said to him the other day, George, if you really want to end tyranny in the world, you're going to have to stay up later. married to the President of the United States, and here's our typical evening. Nine o'clock. Mr. Excitement here is sound asleep. And I'm watching Desperate Housewives. With Lynn Cheney. Ladies and gentlemen, I am a desperate housewife. The First Lady's voice was often heard in international forums. In 2003, she went to Paris to speak to a gathering of UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. The U.S. withdrew from the global body in 1984 over questions of mismanagement, but rejoined in 2003. Mrs. Bush said she saw an opportunity for UNESCO to help defeat terrorism. No nation, we have learned, is immune. We have seen terrorism in the Middle East, Africa, and Southeast Asia. My own country was a target on a terrible September morning two years ago. Since that day, acts of terror have robbed innocents of their lives in Jakarta, Pakistan, and Riyadh. And last month, terrorists attacked the very symbol of the civilized world, striking the United Nations headquarters in Baghdad, killing those who had come to deliver humanitarian help and hope to the people of Iraq. Among the 22 people killed was Sergio Vieira de Mello, who had dedicated his life to the work of peace and understanding between nations. Many of you knew Sergio well. In his honor, we will take up the noble cause that he lived and ultimately died for. UNESCO, an institution born of a yearning for peace that survived years of war, can now help achieve peace by spreading the values that help defeat terror and lead to a safer and better world. Education tolerance, respect for all human life, and respect for each other's differences. These are our common dreams for our children, and these are the charge of UNESCO. Now more than ever, the nations of the world, the peoples of the world, must affirm the stated purpose of this organization, to further universal respect for justice, for the rule of law, and for the human rights and fundamental freedoms which are affirmed for the peoples of the world without distinction of race, sex, language, or religion. Important work, and it's our work, all of us here at UNESCO. 
As a former public school teacher and librarian, I believe education is our mo most urgent priority and should have the first and highest call on our time and resources. Education is vital to developing nations and generations. From the moment they're born, our children's lives are shaped by the education we provide them. Education expands eager young minds. A lack of ed education stifles and limits them. The chance to learn and to read and write should never be only the privilege of a few, royalty or the rich, the firstborn or sons. Education is the birthright of every human being, all the world's sons and all the world's daughters. You're listening to First Ladies in Their Own Words, and we'll be right back. It is rare for a First Lady to take to the podium in the White House press briefing room. But as she prepared for her daughter Jenna's wedding in May of 2008, that's exactly what Laura Bush did. A devastating cyclone in Myanmar, formerly called Burma, prompted her to speak publicly about the humanitarian and political plight of the people there. And she explained, when questioned by a reporter, why she felt compelled to take that stage. Thank you, everybody, for coming out. I just wanted to make a few comments about Burma. On Saturday, Cyclone Nargis swept through Burma. The storm affected more than two million people and, according to the Burmese media, killed thousands. The aftermath has left cities paralyzed, families separated, and houses and businesses destroyed. Americans are a compassionate people and we're already acting to provide help. The U.S. has offered financial assistance through our embassy. We'll work with the U.N. and other international non-governmental organizations to provide water, sanitation, food, and shelter. More assistance will be forthcoming. The United States stands prepared to provide an assistance team and much-needed supplies to Burma as soon as the Burmese government accepts our offer. The government of Burma should accept this team quickly, as well as other offers of international assistance. As they cope with this tragedy, the men and women of Burma remain in the thoughts and prayers of many Americans. It's troubling that many of the Burmese people learned of this impending disaster only when foreign outlets such as Radio Free Asia and Voice of America sounded the alarm. Although they were aware of the threat, Burma's state-run media failed to issue a timely warning to citizens in the storm's path. The response to the cyclone is just the most recent example of the junta's failure to meet its people's basic needs. The regime has dismantled systems of agriculture, education, and health care. This once wealthy nation now has the lowest per capita GDP in Southeast Asia. Despite the havoc created by this weekend cyclone, as far as we can tell, Burma's military leaders plan to move forward with the constitutional referendum scheduled for this Saturday, May 10th. They've orchestrated this vote to give false legitimacy to their continued rule. The proposed constitution was drafted in a flawed process that it excluded opposition and some key ethnic groups. It would effectively give the military a veto over any constitutional changes. The constitution would prohibit democracy activists who are current or former political prisoners 
including Aung San Suu Kyi, from taking office. To ensure their constitution becomes law, the regime has been intimidating voters and using force against dissidents. Public gatherings have been banned, and printed materials may not be distributed without governmental approval. As the date of the referendum draws near, there's been an increase in arrest of opposition party members and activists. This continues to take place despite a call from the international community and most recently from the United Nations Security Council for Burma's government to ensure its referendum is free, fair, and inclusive. In response to the regime's continued repression, President Bush has instructed the U.S. Treasury Department to freeze assets of Burmese state-owned companies that are held in U.S. banks. This adds to actions last year to expand U.S. sanctions against Burma's regime and to tighten sanctions against its top leaders. We thank the European Union, Canada, and Australia for joining the United States in imposing similar restrictions. And we appeal to China, India, and Burma's fellow ASEAN members to use their influence to encourage a democratic transition. Burma's ruling generals have had their chance to implement the good government they promised to their people. If it proceeds under current conditions, the constitutional referendum they have planned should not be seen as a step toward freedom, but rather as a confirmation of the unacceptable status quo. Thank you all very much for giving me a chance to speak. Uh, I'm going to leave tomorrow for Crawford for Jenna's wedding, and I wanted to be able to make a statement about Burma uh, before I left. So I'm happy to take questions. Ms. Bush, could you offer us any specifics yet about the scope of the U.S. disaster relief package? Right now, the, the earliest part of the relief is some money that the embassy already has, that's already there, that we can distribute to uh, other NGOs, the World Food Program, other groups that are on the ground. Uh, if they will let our DART team in, uh, then we'll be able to assess what else we can do. And, and uh, we do have other supplies and commodities in the area, not in Burma, but close in the area that uh, would be available soon uh, for, uh, for help if our DART team can get in and, and uh, see what they can do. And given your concerns about the ruling government there, uh, are you also worried that any USAID might not get to the people affected? Well, I'm worried that they won't even accept USAID, and I urge the government to accept aid from the United States and from the entire international community right now while uh, the needs of their people are so critical. Mrs. Bush, is there any evidence that the sanctions the U.S. and other nations have imposed on uh, the leaders in uh, Myanmar or Burma have uh, had an effect? Only anecdotal. Uh, we have heard um, and not probably can't really confirm uh, about some of the leaders who, who's, uh, who are targeted, uh, actions that they've taken that make us think they, they don't like those targeted sanctions on the leaders themselves. Madam, uh, you have a strong message for the dictatorship, for military dictatorship in Burma as far as this uh, democracy and this cyclone is concerned, and you think they will have a change of heart and minds because of this uh, tragedy? I hope so. I hope that there will be one good thing that comes out of such huge destruction, and that would be the government's 
uh, realization that the people of Burma need help and they need more help than they can give them. April. Why such a historic interest? This is a first for a first lady to come to this podium and talk about a cyclone. Why such a historic interest? Well, you know, I've been interested in Burma for a long time, but it started really with an interest in Aung San Suu Kyi and reading her um, works and just the story of a Nobel Prize winner who's been under house arrest for so long, whose party was overwhelmingly elected in a in a election and then never able to um, take. Um, office. And so it started with an interest in her. And then just the more I've seen, the more critical I see the need is for the people in Burma to be, for the world to pay attention to the people of Burma and for the world to put pressure on the military regime. As Laura Bush's time at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue came to an end, she talked again with C-SPAN. Sitting in the White House she'd called home for the past eight years, she reflected on her life there and the role of First Ladies. I think uh, each of us, uh, because we're sort of in a club, uh, the women who've lived here in this house and served uh, while our husband served, uh, can learn a lot from each other. What about you, though? How has it changed how you view the job and, and really how you view the world? Well, I'm much more uh, obviously aware of problems in the world. Uh, than I was when I grew up in Texas or lived in, you know, even lived in the Texas governor's mansion. Um, I'm very, very aware of problems in the world. I'm aware of problems that women face in Afghanistan, for instance, or in other parts of the world where women are oppressed. I'm very aware of pandemic diseases now and hunger in the world uh, because I've had the chance to visit so many parts of the world, but also I've heard of all the things that the president works on every day. I know the uh, issues that he deals with, and so I'm aware of what those uh, problems are. I think everyone that comes to this job comes with a special interest. I was a teacher and a librarian. That's really where I focused a lot, especially at the first on developing the National Book Festival and uh, helping the president with no Ch- the No Child Left Behind Act because that was my expertise. That was my career and what I'd been interested in my whole life. But I will say that sometimes first ladies are trivialized by what we call a pet project. And in fact, uh, our contributions uh, to the United States from first ladies uh, in many, many cases are much more profound than, uh, than that term. So let me conclude by asking you if you're ready for the, the next chapter in your life and the president's life. I am ready. Uh, I am trying to encourage him to start grilling again. <laughs> No, I really am ready. I mean, eight years uh, is a long time, and it's been an unbelievable privilege to represent and serve the people of the United States, and I've loved every minute of it, and, uh, you know, I've really loved it. But I also understand, and of course, all the time that you live here, you know you're here for a four-year term or if you're reelected for eight years, and um, so I think it's something that you accept. You don't there's no, you don't wish you could stay longer. I think when the time comes, um, it's the right time. We've listened to Laura Bush talk about several issues that were important to her, but one of her most lasting legacies is the National Book Festival, which she started in 2001 and which continues today as a major Washington event. Here she is in 2001 at the inaugural National Book Festival. First Lady Laura Bush, is this day what you expected? It is. I'm so thrilled and excited to be here, and I want to thank C-SPAN for covering the National Book Festival. We have a beautiful sunny day, and I hope the camera shows 
behind me how huge the crowds are. I'm so excited about that. Now, we've talked a lot over the last several days that this idea came from the Texas Book Festival. But where did the idea for the Texas Book Festival come from? Well, it actually came from the Kentucky Book Festival. <laughs> An El Paso writer came to me right after my husband was elected and said he had been to a book festival in, in Kentucky, and he knew that Texans were so proud of our stories that he thought Texans could put on a big, uh, great festival. So. We researched a lot of festivals. A lot of the people who worked on the Texas Book Festival went to the Tennessee Festival, for instance, and uh, we saw what they were like, and, and then we started ours. And Texas, I think this year is the third weekend in November. Will you That's, be back for that? I'll be back for it, and I'm looking forward to it. And I, one thing that I like about both this festival, the National Book Festival and the Texas Book Festival, is that they're right here in the Capitol. Uh, we're right now on the steps of the Library of Congress with the United States Capitol behind us, and I love the whole idea and the symbolism of books and the ideas in books uh, with our national um, government and our democracy, because the ideas in books are really what are so important to our democracy. Last night at the gala, you quoted Eudora Welty. Why? Well, I love that quote of hers about her mother took her to the library and told the librarian, introduced her to the librarian and said, Eudora is nine years old and she has my permission to check out any book on these shelves. And so then Eudora wrote this, she wrote this in her biography, One Writer's Beginnings, um, that she went to the library as often as she could. She rode home on her bicycle with her books in her bicycle basket. And then she read and she said, she knew that was bliss. Was that similar to your experience? Absolutely. I love to read and I uh, went to the library in Midland, Texas when I was little. It was in the basement of the uh, Midland County Courthouse and to have the library be in the center of town in the courthouse that is the center square of, of my town showed me how important reading and libraries were to everyone in the town of Midland. When we interviewed you in July, we asked you that hypothetical question of the people that you would ask to be around your dinner table, if you could, <laughs> the writers. You said name Mark Twain, you named Dostoevsky, you named uh, Tolstoy and Willa Cather. Anybody you want to add to that table today? Well, we've got a lot of great people here at this table, and I hope everyone who sees this today on C-SPAN, who's anywhere in the area, comes down. They can meet David McCullough. They can hear him read from his book, um, John Adams, his new book, which he read from last night. Um, I love the idea of Americans reading about our American heroes, our, his new book about our second president. It's so instructive to all of us. And, and so I hope people will read that book, but I hope they'll also read a lot of other American history books. We have great children's writers here today. Chris Curtis, who was the first Amer African American to win the Newbery Award, is here read, uh, reading from his book. We have a number of storybook characters. I said earlier, somebody told me they could tell I was from the South because I said you can get your picture made with Clifford the Big Red Dog. <laughs> so I hope people come out and do that. As we close out our look at Laura Bush, she unveils her official portrait at the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery. This was only weeks before the Bushes left Washington to return home to Texas. So if the First Lady would please join me in the unveiling of her portrait for the National Portrait Gallery. Ready?
visiting the Smithsonian Museums, and particularly the Smithsonian Art Museums, has been one of my favorite pastimes here in Washington. So it's a special honor to have my portrait displayed in these halls. And thanks for working to unveil these portraits early while President Bush is still in office. Upstairs, I saw that Dolly Madison's portrait is praised for offering a glimpse of the aging Mrs. Madison. That's exactly the type of compliment I was hoping to avoid. When your image is captured for posterity, my motto is, the sooner the better. With so many familiar faces here today, it gives me the opportunity to thank all of you for your support and friendship over the past eight years. President Bush and I have had such a special privilege of being able to represent the people of the United States. We'll return to Texas with cherished memories of our friends, our staff, and our time at the White House. Thank you for joining us at this moment of reflection and celebration. May God bless you all. Next week, Michelle Obama, a lawyer, mother of two daughters, and the nation's first African-American first lady. Thank you.